Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. This week's podcast episode is sponsored by Sysapp, who currently have, if you use code FREDDIE, that's F-R-E-D-D-I-E, all block capitals, they have a 10% discount up until the end of July 2022. They've also got business solutions, so you can, if you've got a fleet of vehicles, whether it's motorbikes, cars, or vans, you can see where everyone is at the same time. So go and check them out if you're interested. I'll leave all the details in the written description below. Right. Now, this week's podcast episode is almost entirely going through a few interesting emails and messages that I got through the website over the past week or so. I've chosen, I've chosen my favourite five or so, and I just wanted to say at the beginning of this podcast episode, thank you so much to everyone who writes in emails and messages. I read all of them. I'm so sorry if I don't get to reply to all of them, but I read them all and I just try and handpick uh, ones that I think will, will fit well with each individual podcast episode. So here we go. Let's begin. Hi, Freddie. I've got two questions that might be of interest for the podcast. A, if someone's getting into motorcycling later in life, like in their mid-20s, for example, or like in their mid-30s, for example, do you think it's best to just get an A2 license first or go straight to the direct access and get a full license? So I'll answer this bit first. This is a question that I, I had when I started riding. I had this in my mind. Do you, do you, well, for one, do you just go for a CBT, which is where you can ride a 125cc bike? with L plates and no pillion? Do you just get that for a year or so to get yourself familiar with biking? Or do you do the A2 license, which is restricted, I think, to something like 47 horsepower motorbikes? Or do you just go all out and get the full direct access course? That means you're going to be taking a test on the bigger 600cc plus bikes, and it means that if you pass it, you're going to be able to ride any bike you want without restriction at all. After doing this myself and, and trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I would say it may be very, very slightly harder than the A2 license, for example, but I would say just, just go straight out and just do your, your full license straight out. If you can, just jump out and do it. However, having said that, with the A2 license, you know, there's, there's a lot of good A2 bikes out there. The Royal Enfield spring to mind. But I would say, if in doubt, if you've got the ability to do either the A2 or the full access, just go out there and get the full access license straight away. Question or part B. What do you think is the best small CC modern classic bike to get. I'm keen on a 250cc scrambler, but can't decide between the Mutt Razorback or Bullet Hero. So if we're looking at 250cc scramblers, I've just got these up and I was having a look at these because I'm, I'm familiar with Mutts because I've tried a Mutt Mastiff. If we're looking at a 250cc Mutt Razorback, now this is interesting because this Razorback is in the same A2 license category 
as the likes of the Interceptor and the Meteor and the classic 350. The 250cc Razorback, lovely looking retro bike. It's a British brand, Matt, but the engines are built in China and then the bikes are assembled in the UK, in Birmingham. I've been to their, their new headquarters. It's very, very cool. It's a great looking bike. They're, they're good bikes. They may not quite have the solidity and feel of a Royal Enfield with regards to the gutsy strong engines, but they are good and very, very cool bikes and I would definitely recommend one. Razorback looks great, cool looking scrambler. Now, the other one, the Bullet, I think it's the, the Bullet 250. I actually couldn't find a price on those. I think that's from a Belgian company. Now, if I were choosing this, to the best of my knowledge, you are, you're based in, based in, yes, based in the UK, Colin. I personally would go for a Mutt. And the reason I would go for a Mutt is I've been to meet the team in Birmingham. They are pushing on greatly and they've got a very, very good following in the UK with a really nice destination dealership in Birmingham. And I think they do meets a few times a year. Have... Deus Ex Machina, that really cool um, bike modifying company. They've got a really cool dealership in Bali where you can go, you can get some coffee, some food, see all of the custom bikes, you know, see all the, the cool clothing, the cool gears. This is what Mutt Motorcycles have done in Birmingham. It's a cool destination dealership and they do the lifestyle side of things very, very well. So if I were to have to choose one, I would actually go for a Mutt purely because of what they represent. I really like that. Um, I continue with the email. I ask, as I started getting into motorcycling in my mid-twenties, doing a CBT and getting a Jinlun 125cc cruiser, but after a year and a half, I had to accept I could afford either a car or a motorbike, and not both. So I had to put biking on hold. Now I'm in a better place and I can afford to enjoy motorbiking as a hobby. Have a listen to this, because I read this a few days ago. This is very interesting about how biking is different in different areas. Okay, I'm in a slightly weird scenario as well, though, which you might find interesting, as I split my time between the UK and Singapore. Singapore has a very different approach to motorbike licences. As you no doubt know, the UK starts with a CBT. That's where you have to do one day training to be able to ride a 125cc motorbike and you basically can't fail it. It's training as opposed to a test. Uh, I continue. Then one full day pretty much guaranteed at the end you're allowed to ride on the road on your own on a tiny cc bike. But in Singapore you can't ride alone on the road until you've done a proper test and you can't do that and you can't do that test until you've done four practical lessons in a test center, a bike theory test, road simulations on a computer, four on the road lessons, and then a test. That's all to be able to ride a 125cc bike. And the lessons need to be passed, not just completed, brackets, they are quite strict, and they all need to be passed quite the endeavor. Then you get to the 200cc uh, motorbike license and have to wait one year before you can do your lessons and test for the 400cc and then another year's wait for the full license. 
all this regardless of your age. So basically you have to do your small bike test and then you can get your 200cc license and then you have to wait a year after that before you're allowed to do lessons and a test for the 400cc license and then another one year wait after you've got that 400cc license to get your full license and it's all regardless of age. Uh, I continue with the email. I think my 20-year-old self would have been outraged, but now a bit older and less of a daredevil, I can see the rationale. They have a lot fewer motorcycle deaths and serious injuries here. You'll be amazed also by prices of motorcycles in Singapore. In addition to big import taxes, in order to buy a bike, you would have to pay roughly £6,000 for a certificate of entitlement for the bike, which lasts 10 years. The car COE is roughly £38,000. Well, th this is about the, the most extreme I've ever heard anywhere in the world. So it, it's, I mean, it's too far for me to say it's anti-biking because they're doing it from a safety point of view and you have to admire that. Yes, I agree, Colin. I would have been absolutely furious if I were younger looking to do this. It seems fine now because, oh, I can be blasé, you know. I've got my bike test, it's, it doesn't matter. But when you're looking to do your bike test, this is daunting enough in the UK. A lot of people in the UK say it's getting too, too extreme, too anti-biking, too complicated to get your, your motorbike license and it puts a lot of people off. I remember being so daunted by the idea of, of having to go through these strange steps to get my motorbike test, having to do, you know, really a one week intensive course that was the most cost effective way to do it. You know, it's about 800 pounds. Fail that course, well, guess what? You're gonna to have to be paying about 250 pounds every time you want to try and retake. But Singapore is another level. It's not only multiple tests, but multiple lessons and multiple years in between the, the 125 and the 200 and the 400cc category. When I, if I go to Singapore and I look at the, the bikers out there, I will look at them in a different way. And I've heard this because I was talking to, to Shannon, uh, an Aussie biker, and he was saying how expensive the annual, I think it's the annual taxes out in Australia are gigantic amounts for some motorbikes, something like about £650 sterling a year. Um, just, you know, the standard cost of being able to own one of these bikes. So Shannon, the, the Australian biker, who's saying, look, it'd be nice to have a garage of 10 bikes, but you're going to be paying gigantic amounts of money every year, you know, just to be able to own the things. And here, Colin in Singapore, you've got the huge import taxes and you have to pay... UK equivalent, £6,000 sterling just for the certificate of entitlement, which means you're allowed to ride the bike for 10 years. And after that 10 years, you've got to do the same again. That's on top of buying your motorbike. £6,000. I know people earn a lot in Singapore, but that is completely astronomical. Astronomical. And the car certificate of entitlement in Singapore is roughly £38,000. So you've got to pay £38,000 for the privilege of driving the car that you've bought with your own money for 10 years. I don't know how anyone survives in Singapore, or I'm 
clearly completely out of touch with with what the, the minimum wage is in that country. Otherwise, everyone would be going around on bicycles. It's incredible. Colin, thank you so much. That is eye-opening, eye-opening. I continue. Next one. Hi, Freddie. Just watched your video on the Honda C90, brought back great memories. When I was 14, me and a friend bought a 1968 Honda C50 for five pounds. It was a bit ropey, but we fixed it up, spent hours riding the back lanes in the fields. I know it's illegal, but I remember different days in 1974, my first taste of biking, I still have, uh, my, uh, my first taste of biking, I still have three, one, and I still have three 125cc bikes, brilliant, cheap, fun, uh, cheap tax, 100 miles per gallon, and cheap home servicing. Anyway, a question for you. Get ready for this. Should I sell my 2011 Triumph Street Triple R, the last of the bug-eyed versions, to buy the new BSA Gold Star? I'm really struggling with this one. It would be great to hear from you. Andrew, this is... This is, oh, I like this. I really, really like this question. So I tested one of these. The Triumph Street Triple R. This is, I think they came out in about 2007 or so. And I think they switched from those iconic bug eyes in around about 2010, 2011, just off the top of my head. This is the first generation Triumph Street Triple. And it is the the best model of that, the R model. You can get one of these, just having a quick look a few minutes ago, I think around about 5,000 pounds, but, but I think they've started going up in value slightly now and they are a sure thing, modern classic. They've got that iconic look with those two twin chrome bug eyes. It's the first generation of what came to be a world beater of a bike, the Triumph Street Triple. The handling's sublime, the engine's sublime. They're so good, even 14 years on, that I think they still feel like a completely thoroughly modern bike that you could put in almost any showroom. The only thing is you don't have the rider age with aids, which I think is a good thing, but they stand up to anything now. They're a sublime, sublime bike. And I've never tested the BSA Gold Star that comes in at six and a half thousand pounds. So let's say, Andrew, that you've got a one and a half thousand pound deficit, unless, of course, you're, you know, you've got a street triple that may be able to command closer to five and a half thousand pounds. So do you go for a bike in the street triple or do you keep a bike in the street triple that's currently got a value of five thousand pounds, but will... I would say you're fairly close to being guaranteed that every year that will be going up in value and you've got a guaranteed future classic there. You've got a bike that you will never lose a penny on, at least with regards to resale value, not one penny. And then you've got a brand new bike coming out, the BSA Gold Star that's caused a big stir, but it is still relatively, relatively untested. It's got the classic looks. It's going to have a much, much more laid back, casual riding experience. I've sat on it. It's a lovely bike. For me personally, if you ask me with, with my opinion on the kinds of bikes I like, what would I go for now? I, I would be putting the Street Triple R onto the market and selling it. And I would be 
calling up BSA and putting my deposit down for one of the brand new gold stars that come out in about a month. And the reason I say this, uh, yes, it's a new bike and new bikes, you know, they're, they're usually more reliable and they're just easier to live with, even though the Street Triple is a very, very easy to live with bike. However, the BSA Gold Star, it's, it's much more comfortable, it's much more relaxing and it's much more laid back. So for me personally, I think it's the kind of bike that I would want to ride more. I remember with the Street Triple when I was testing in Tenerife, it's an amazing bike, but it is still a fairly uncompromising bike. You know, it, it may be comfortable with regards to and in comparison to a sports bike, but it is definitely not comfortable when I compare it to the likes of a Bonneville or an Interceptor or the Gold Star. I went on a few rides. I was on the Bonneville in Tenerife and a really good friend of mine called Paul. He's got a lovely Triumph Street Triple R. Uh, no, Street Triple, not the R. And we'd go up for rides two up. He'd be with his partner. I'd have Monica on the back. We'd ride up into the hills. And we would always feel at the end of it like we were just jumping off, Monica and I, like we'd sat on a sofa. It's just so easy going in its nature where you could see that Maria on the back and Paul on the front. There's a little bit more weight over Paul's wrists and Maria on the back, slightly less comfortable than Monica would have been. And I think the easier going nature of these modern classics. They just lend themselves to bikes that you want to ride more. Um, and for me personally, I'm a sucker for the styling. Let's be honest, the big reason for me, I, I prefer the styling of the BSA to the Street Triple. So, Andrew, I hope that's helped. Um, they're slightly intangible reasons, at least with the styling, but I would go for the BSA. I just think it's a very special bike. I also think that it will hold its value extremely well. It's a brand new bike that's come out. You know, we're going to have the electrification soon. So I think actually this could well be a future classic in its own right as well. I don't think uh, you're going to be losing much money on this bike. I think it'll be interceptor level with regards to residuals. I think it'll be an extremely good bike to own and I think it will stand the test of time very, very well. And being the first new bike coming back from BSA, I think grab one of those early ones, grab one of them, it'll be a very good bike to own. So let me know, let me know if you get it onto eBay, the Street Triple R. Oh, it's a good position to be in there, Andrew. Okay, I move on. Uh, Freddie, just listening to your latest podcast and your questioning. Ah, I like this one. Okay. This was sent to me a few days ago. So, Freddie, I'm just listening to your latest podcast and you're questioning why motorcycles are lacking in fuel economy and fuel efficiency compared to cars. I believe a big reason for this is that the EU has been putting huge restrictions and requirements in place for cars and year on year, these requirements have become more and more strict. However, when it comes to motorcycles, the same restrictions haven't been applied. I think this is largely due to the very small number of motorcycles on the roads compared to cars. Motorcycles have slipped under the radar, simply speaking. In recent years, this has obviously changed. During that time, the manufacturers had taken advantage of this oversight, the motorcycle manufacturers. So instead of investing lots of money in making their engines much more environmentally friendly or fuel efficient, I would imagine that money has gone to lineups uh, to, I would imagine that uh, money has gone to line some CEO's pockets 
Perhaps I'm being overly cynical, but outside of regulations, I can't see many reasons why a manufacturer would spend the time and money. Unfortunately, there aren't many businesses out there just doing something for the altruistic joy of it. Many thanks, Elliot. Yeah, I think you're, you're spot on, Elliot, and it's true. It's, well, for one, it's, it's unfair to expect a business to, uh, to have to, you know, invest all of their profits into doing something that they don't necessarily legally have to do. Um, there's no reason why they should have to do that. Um, and I do agree with you because this makes perfect sense. I always wonder how come cars are pushing on when bikes aren't and that will make complete sense. How much not to painting off the wall. How much will that change in, in the next few years or so? Because I agree, it's, it's clearly, it's, we've clearly got to a position now where things are changing now with motorbikes. You can really feel that, you know, up until what felt like, I think it was only about three years ago in London, I think you could pretty much ride any motorbike into London you wanted, regardless of how old and polluting it is. And for cars, it had restrictions in long, long before, but that is now starting to change. And you're hearing it as well, not just from a fuel economy point of view or <coughs> environmentally friendly point of view, but even with things like the exhausts. You know, there used to be a free fall in the exhausts with the, the noise that they made. And now you listen to a lot of the new bikes, well, there's no sound at all. Listen to an Indian or a Harley. Well, I haven't heard. I don't think I've heard a good sounding Indian or Harley from any of the new lineup so far. Very interesting. Elliot, thank you. I move on. Uh, let's have a look. Oh, oh, I think this is from, apologies, I've completely forgotten to write the name down. Someone just uh, messaged me. Do you know if the gentleman's ride allows L-plate motorcycles to join the outing? I've just started riding at 54 years old. It's the best thing I've ever done. I love reading stuff like that. I always say it, you are never too old, too young, or too inexperienced to get into biking. It's open to everyone. I love, I love hearing whether it's a 16 year old getting into biking or I've heard 75 year olds getting into biking. It's, it's there for everyone. There's a bike for everyone, everyone, regardless of your age, your height, your shape, your ability, your, your strengths, your weaknesses, everyone, it's brilliant. And with regards to, um, I'm so sorry I didn't write your name down, with regards to the gentleman's ride, of course, L plates, absolutely welcome. Absolutely welcome. Everyone is welcome. So if you're on an L plate, wear it with pride. You're welcome there. I move on. I think uh, this is from, if I remember, my apologies again, I didn't write it down. I think this is Paul, who is uh, an ex. Oh, I'll read this to you first. Freddie, reason I'm contacting you, I have a love of Royal Enfields. Um, over the past 15 years. And I have owned bikes, mainly Enfields, from 1947 up to my current keeper, a 2016 Forest Green 500 B5 Bullet. I have had Harley-Davidson's, BSA's, Motoguzzi's, Honda Pan-Europeans, but I must say my current Bullet is by far the best bike I've ever owned. A bit about myself. I'm a retired pro heavyweight boxer Serving police officer in the Met, based at Paddington Green with 23 years frontline experience on the beat. And I love boxing, Royal Enfields, jazz, 
<laughs> I play sax and most of all coffee while on a country ride while, on, while out on Harry the Bullet Enfield. This just shows that, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, uh, my Bonneville, for example, it's, it's just, it's a nice bike, but it's just a bit too small. But I've never got that at all. I never got that at all. And here you've got a heavyweight boxer who's owned Harley Davidson's on his preferred bike, which is a little Royal Enfield bullet. You know, there's a beautiful joy about small bikes. I'm here, for example, in Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, and I'm looking downstairs now from my third floor window of, well, this blue sky outside. It's, it's in the ex-Soviet block of buildings. I'm looking into the courtyard now, and there's a small, ridiculously undersized, actually, little car park for, for all of the cars. And just downstairs is the little classic 350. And I would not have been able to park that there if it was a big adventure bike. Something about smaller bikes that makes them so accessible, not whether it's in the city or just using them in general. And really, size doesn't matter too much. You can be a heavyweight boxer and enjoy these small bikes. It really, you know, you can, you can be more flexible than you thought with regards to sizing of bikes. I know a lot of people say, look, if you're over six foot, forget a Bonneville. You know, forget, forget a Royal Enfield Classic if you're over six foot. I don't think that's true at all. And I think this has just given a little extra argument to it. Um, I'd love to try and test that actually. Harry the Bullet, that would be brilliant. That's a good investment bike. Uh, I'm moving on. This will be my last bit. This is my wrap up piece here. So, hey man. I'm currently on a Keyway K-Lite 125. So for anyone who doesn't know this, a Keyway I think is a Chinese, um, little Chinese motorbike. They actually look quite good. I think they do retro classic styles, cruiser style bikes. They look quite good actually, to be fair to them. Um, and I'm planning to do my direct access course. This is what I was talking about earlier. The direct access is the one week course that you do. And at the end of it, you've got your full motorbike license. So you can ride any bike you want. I continue. And I'm planning to do my direct access at the end of the year, hopefully. I've been looking at Honda Cruisers. I love the Honda Rebel, but realistically and financially, it would probably be a 500cc Rebel. My question, do you think it's better to go for an older Honda Shadow 750 or a more modern Honda Rebel 500? What would be the year cutoff for a shadow to be modern and reliable enough, e.g. fuel injection, etc.? I'm interested to hear your thoughts and opinions on this. Thank you. This is a good question because I now in my mind have put, if I go out and buy a bike, I do want a certain level of, of reliability or as close as I can get to, to guaranteed reliability. And for me now, there's a certain type of bike that I just would not buy. And that is carburetted bikes because I spent my, my first uh, two, I spent my first two years on a carburetted bike and then I also had a Suzuki Bandit three years ago and I had that for a year and a half, carburetor. I, I can't be dealing with carbs. 
can't be dealing with it, the starting issues, the, the, the extra hassle. Ooh, there's a dog outside. Wait, I'll just run outside now. I'm just going to the balcony. Ooh, two different dog owners just watching, screaming at each other. Okay, I'll carry on. Um, carburetted bikes, I know I just can't get along with them. They're too much hassle. I want to be able to wake up in the morning, turn my bike on and just press the on button and it just starts. I can't be dealing with some clogged up old carbs that need cleaning or X and Y and yada, yada, yada. Nope, so for me, carbs came onto most bikes from around about around about 2008 or so. Um, so for me now, 20, 2008 or 2010, that's really the cutoff. So Honda Rebel, let's have a look at what we can get and the prices. Honda Rebel 500. So for anyone not completely familiar with this, this is, I tested out the 1100 Rebel and it's a superb motorcycle. Cruiser bike, but with that very unique Japanese twist on, on what they see a cruiser motorbike to be. Extremely comfortable, um, they look great, very, very well made, and importantly, superb value. Really, really, I could not believe how good value they were. Right, let's have a look. Honda Rebel, in fact, it won't be called a Rebel. Honda Rebel. They've always got funny, uncatchy names, so I have to type it in. Honda Rebel CMX, that's it. Real name, Honda CMX. Okay, Honda CMX 500 Rebel. Well, you can get one of these, 2018 model, for £4,200, 14,000 miles on the clock. Tell you a good sign of these. A lot of these have fairly chunky mileage on actually. It shows they're good bikes to be used. Okay, so if we're looking at 4,300 pounds for a, a good Honda Rebel uh, or the entry level Honda Rebel, but that will be all day reliability. It will never ever do you wrong. That will be a very, very, very good bike to own. Now, if we compare that to a Honda Shadow, let's have a look at that. Now the Honda Shadow is VT. There we go, I just had to find the, the official name. So what year can we get and what's going to be the best buy? Honda VT, VT, should we do the VT, VT750? Let's have a look at the VT750 and see what we can get. Older Shadow, right. Okay, right, I, I'll be completely honest. I, I do prefer the look of the shadow. It's got that more classic cruiser look. But you're looking at a 1998 model for about 3,300 pounds or so. So it's, it's going to be carb. It's going to be a carb bike. So, and let's just see what else I can get. Ah, I tell you what we can get though. We can get a 2010 model for not much more. This is quite interesting. You can get a 2010 Honda Shadow for £4,800. That's only about £400 more than... 
Hmm, that's only £400 more than the Honda Rebel. I found a lovely one, which I, I think looks amazing, which I would actually go out and buy myself, j just uh, for demonstration purposes. Honda Shadow VT750. It's a 2010 model. It's 750cc. It's from a dealer. It is from a Honda dealer, actually, in Yorkshire. It's £4,995. So... It's about £600 more expensive than the cheapest Honda Rebel. Hmm. And it's very, very nice. Now, is it? The question is, is that going to be carburetor or injection? Because if you can get one of these 2010 models and surely... 22, it must be. I'm going to stick my neck on the line here and say it's a, it's a 2010 Honda. There's no way that's going to be carb. No way. Must be fuel injection. I would say if you can get one of these, let me just do a quick check. Honda Shadow. What year fuel injection? Let me see if I can find this quickly. Ah. All other brand. Mm. Okay, let's have a look. Here we go. Here we go. The RS and Phantom are the latest two additions to the 750cc lineup from year 2010. Both are fuel injected. So it looks like from 2010, they are injected. I'll just check one more to see. Yeah. I think, I think you're going to be okay then. Radiator. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. They are available in just one color, gray metallic. The engine, uh, air-cooled, radiator, fuel-injected, V-twin. You're going to be fine. Okay, I would say go for a 2008-2010 onwards Honda Shadow. That would be my pick, just because I love those looks so, so much. If you go for a Rebel, though, it's not the wrong choice. That is a really, really good motorbike. Let me know what you go for, but every time I look at these Japanese cruisers, you know, to get so much bike for under 5K, so much style, so much quality in class, that's a tempting proposition, right? I'll end it there. The best of luck. The best of luck with that. Let me know what you go for. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode. Thank you to Sizap for sponsoring this week's episode. Go and check them out if you need a tracker. Have a brilliant week. It's been an amazing week, heatwave-wise. Uh, not quite here in Lithuania, but it's nice to see the news and see that the rest of Europe is basking in the sun. Have a good one. I'll speak to you next one. Take care.